Brittany Packett said, an ally shows up when it is convenient, an accomplice shows up when there is a risk. I am Tamara Ross, and this is Ally to Accomplice. Take a risk and join me on a learning journey where we will hear from smart and generous individuals who will help guide us to use our power and privilege to challenge the status quo and create equitably inclusive spaces for all. Once you have seen injustice, you can't unsee it. We are obliged to act. This podcast is being recorded in the Treaty 7 region, the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Stony Nakoda Nation, the Tsutina Nation, and the Métis Nation Region 3. I am grateful as a white settler with privilege that I live, work, and play here, and strive to live in right relations to all those human and non-human who call this place home. Rebecca Torres was paralyzed in a car accident as a teenager. After completing degrees in fashion design and theater arts, Rebecca worked as a costume designer and simultaneously with organizations doing disability work in health, advocacy, recreation, and peer support. She started a nonprofit called Backbones after realizing that years of interaction and friendship with others living with spinal cord injuries made a significant impact in her own life. She is co-director of Real Abilities Film Festival Chicago and has curated touring photography and art exhibitions that showcase works of people with disabilities and brings awareness to disability rights. Rebecca uses painting, illustration, photography, film, movement, and other media as a form of expression and a tool for advocacy and social justice. Hi, Rebecca, and welcome. Thank you so much for coming onto this podcast to talk about your work as an artist and advocate. Thank you for, for inviting me. Um, I look forward to this conversation. I would love to begin by talking about your work as an artist. Maybe you can also touch on two of your most recent projects, Unbound and Tres Fridas, and how you're using art to make visible those that many times are invisible. My artwork, I do a lot of different things. Initially, I did illustration and drawing, painting. I went to school for fashion design and then theater arts and eventually did some costume design. Now I sort of incorporate a lot of different mediums into my work. A few years back, somebody let me borrow a camera and helped me attach it to my wheelchair with different mounts. And that just opened up a whole nother world for me where I could use photography. Currently, I'm also working on a film as well about artists with disabilities. I like to continue learning all the time and using different mediums and maybe not always perfecting or the, the craft of, of them all, but at yeah. least, you know, trying, trying different mediums and, and just having fun and playing with them is, is something that I really enjoy. In terms of my two recent pieces of work, the collection of Unbound is a series of photographs that actually started when that friend of mine let me borrow that camera and she helped me attach it to my wheelchair. And the camera is positioned on the handles of my wheelchair behind me. Mm -hmm. So you can see my head in the frame of all the photographs and my shoulders. But then beyond that, you can see different sceneries. And some of them, I am in different locations in the city of Chicago. There's another one where I'm in the mountains in New Mexico. I'm doing yoga. I'm in my car driving. I'm at a music festival. And the idea behind these photographs was I had a conversation with someone about the term or, or the phrase when people say 
you're wheelchair bound. And, you know, that comes with a lot of baggage with it. You know, when, when people say that you're, you're wheelchair bound, when people see a wheelchair, they, they think limitation and they think disability. And, you know, oftentimes it's, it's what the person cannot do. Oh, that person cannot walk or, oh, that person has, you know, is limited. When in reality, a, a wheelchair to the person using it is freedom. I was going to ask you about that because you've talked a lot about flipping that notion of using it to be able to do something versus not being able to do something. Right. Without my wheelchair, I would be stuck in bed all day. And I'm someone who's out in the community. I'm able to drive. I'm able to work. I'm able to travel. And all of that is because of my chair. And so, like you said, I wanted to flip that term and, and really share that we're unbound using this chair and not necessarily bound and limited by it. How did the project Tres Fridas come about? This project was in collaboration with two other artists, women with disabilities as well, Mariam Pare and Tara Ahern. We had conversations about how Frida had inspired us and influenced our work as women uh, with disabilities and as artists with disabilities. Mariam and I had not met each other we had just talked over Skype and over the phone and we had these conversations and we're like, we should go to Mexico and we should go to La Casa Sur where her house is and the museum. And we had all these grand plans to travel to Mexico and that has not happened yet. (laughs) But along the way, we decided to recreate the image, Dos Fridas, with the two Fridas sitting next to each other, holding hands. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to be the models in this. We wanted to swap out the Fridas and us be the models holding hands and in our wheelchairs so that the chairs would make an impact and would make people sort of look twice and, and really look at the, the image. I created the costumes. Tara is a photographer and she took the photographs and Miriam did some digital painting. Mm-hmm. She's a, a mouth painter. So she was able to recreate the background images painting with her mouth together we we created this first image and we had a lot of fun doing it and decided we wanted to do more we ended up with 16 images um, including recreations of the birth of venus the old guitarist rosie the riveter the last supper iconic works of art that people would recognize but then they would see it and be like oh whoa that's a person with a disability. Mm. Every image came with a text card or like image card that would describe the original image, why we chose it, and also what it meant. And some of them talked about self-image, talked about employment, Mm. like inequality, interabled relationships, a lot of different topics that are disability related. And we wanted um, to use art to, to bring those to to light and to have people learn in a fun way. Do you miss designing for the stage? Would you consider doing it again? Oh yes, absolutely. (laughs) I I miss it a lot. I learned to design and construct things one way. And when I started doing costumes for dance, I had to learn the different materials that were going to be able to be used by the dancers. They have to stretch a certain way. They need to be able to take them on and off fairly quickly. They can't rip. They need to be durable. (laughs) After all that work, you go out in the audience and you just watch them 
move on stage and I love bodies and I love anatomy and just the movement. That was the best part for me to just sit back and watch them dance and, and the costumes move with them. Why do you feel that the arts is uniquely poised to show us injustice and move the viewer to address it? Well, I think there's a lot of issues that need to be addressed and causes and there's people working on policy and legislation and you know trying to change minds trying to get people to care and it's really hard to get people to care about something yeah. and and then take that step beyond caring to actually do something about that i think art is that first step where maybe somebody for example if with the exhibition the tres fridas exhibition there may have been people that went to the exhibition that could probably not have an interest or care about any disability issues, but maybe they were Frida fans or they were Picasso fans and they knew that there was going to be some work that was recreated or, you know, whatever other reason that would have taken them there, but they learned something and hopefully they took that information and it made a shift in the way that they think and the way that they perceive a person with a disability or the disability experience. And my hope is that that, that shift and, and changing of perceptions will then encourage people to not look away in the future when there's a time for people to take action and to care. And I think once people do start caring, then we could really impact legislation and policy. At first, you, you made a conscious decision to keep your art separate from your advocacy work. What changed your mind to use art to illuminate and expose? Was there a moment or an incident that changed your mind? Yeah, I started a nonprofit in 2009 called Backbones, and it is for people with spinal cord injuries and disabilities to find connection with their communities. In 2010, we were recreating or we were building our website, and I was looking on Google for all the for images that like stock images that we could put on our website and looked up wheelchairs, looked up disability and everything that came up was just depressing. So I ended up working with a photographer to do a series of photographs with people with disabilities, of different ages, genders, backgrounds. I wanted a diverse group of people. The reaction was really positive. You know, people we're saying these are really great photos. Like they, it makes me happy when I come to your website. A few years after that, and I was working with someone, a fundraiser, and I just made a comment. I said, we need to have a museum do an exhibition on disability. He said to me, well, I know this person who is just about to open a museum and it was on health and medicine. And he's like, maybe I can get you a meeting and you can pitch them your idea. I was very nervous. I went to this meeting with like three or four different ideas and I pitched them to the director of the museum, hoping that he would pick one and say, yeah, let's go with it. He said, I love all of these. Let's do all of them. We worked with them over the next four years and we did all the exhibits I, I proposed to him. We ended up doing them. But the first one was one called Reinventing the Wheel, where we had 21 stories that were documented by 21 photographers through photo essays from all over the country. We collected those photo essays with bios and did a digital collection at the museum. They had 22 screens 
like very, very large monitors at this museum. And I had initially proposed, I'm like, maybe we could do like four stories. And he said, can you do one for each monitor? Each screen. And I like, oh, yeah, I yeah. can. <laughs> and I left that meeting and I was like, oh no, how am I going to do this? But we pulled it off. We printed some selected images and those ended up touring two different cities for the next couple of years. That was kind of where I started seeing that these stories through photography and through storytelling, the, the way that people were, were reacting at the, those exhibitions, they were like, I feel like I know these people and I feel like I've learned so much and these are beautiful stories. Seeing that impact made me think that there was so many creative ways of awareness and of changing minds and getting people to understand something that they, that might seem foreign or scary to them. You mentioned Backbone, so you began it over 10 years ago now. What made you start the uh, nonprofit? I will tell you, it all started with a fashion show. We went, and I did not know that it was a benefit for an organization called Immerman Angels that does one-on-one -on -one peer support for cancer fighters and cancer survivors. And so they match them according to the type of cancer they've had and their age and location so that they can find support within each other. Several days later, when I went home, I was like, oh, I should check this out and really know like what this fundraiser was about. And I looked it up and I, I saw their mission and I immediately thought if I would have had this when I was injured, when I was 13, if I would have had someone to talk to, to just be able to call and, and tell them how I was feeling or to ask them like, how, how do you do this? Or how do you do that? It would have saved me a lot of heartache and it would have saved me a lot of self-doubt and just feeling comfortable with being a person with a disability after my injury. That was the spark to it where I was like, I want to do something like this for people who have been injured and who feel like they've lost everything mm -hmm. and that they want to find their passion again and they want to like live live a life a quality of life that is good for them as an advocate what what do you find is the most challenging part of the work for you burnout and to not get exhausted it's it's not work that is gonna finish anytime soon or be resolved and there's moments when it's really frustrating and it can be heartbreaking seeing like injustices or seeing people not get the things that they need to to thrive, but it also is really rewarding when you talk to someone and they you can tell in their voice that they're so scared or they're just like feeling so defeated. And just by talking to someone and you tell them, oh, I have a spinal cord injury too. And there's this like sigh of relief where mm. they are like, oh, you know what I'm, you know what what's going on. And then they start pouring their heart out and tell you everything. You've been a resident at many artist residencies in the past. Do you find that your advocacy work has to come into play when preparing for these residencies just to make it possible for you to attend and just focus on your work? Well, yes and no. The first one I went to was Vermont and I was definitely scared and nervous of going because I was gonna leave my home for about a month and be away from home? Was I going to have the necessary things? And was it going to be accessible? I, I had to do a lot of planning beforehand. I had to contact the staff and I asked them for pictures of the rooms of the studios and really just did a lot of 
question asking. They were great at sending me pictures and videos and stuff that that put me at ease. And I was like, okay, well then I I think I can do this. Mm. And they were very accommodating once I got there too, if I needed anything. And, And sometimes even before I needed anything, some other residents would would see there was a time where like we were going to have a, a program in one of the buildings that had a little bit of a threshold, which I could have, I could have made work, but she saw it the day before. And she said, Oh, Rebecca's not going to be able to get in here. And she told someone. And by the next day they had a little ramp installed so that I could go where, you know, in other places and situations you ask for things like that. And it takes weeks, months, to get anything done or to get someone to listen and and do it. And so it was really nice to have that immediate response. And and same happened when I was in Santa Fe. When I got there, the bed was a little bit too low for me to transfer on. And I mentioned it. And not even two hours later, they had come in with like these razors and raised the bed for me to where I needed it. And I was comfortable with and that was awesome. Like it really is awesome because having to do that work takes away from being able to do art in its mind space too, that like it, it takes up stress and just you thinking about it, anxiety. And so having that immediate response or someone just like taking a uh, interest in your concerns and, and doing something about it really um, frees up your time for what you're actually there to do, which is art and create. Rebecca, what do you think makes a good ally? I think um, a good ally is someone who listens and someone who gives you the space to share concerns and try to understand how they can how they can help if you want help or how to stay out of the way if if that's what needs to happen too. I think primarily someone who listens and and asks questions to to learn. 2020 has been a wonderful year of recognition for you as the recipient Mm -hmm. of the Craig H. Nielsen Visionary Prize Awardee, as well as Three Arts Award, and a first year recipient of, I'm not going to say this right, the Hulu Kartemkin? Kartemkin, yes. Kartemkin Accelerator. Is this the film you're working on or a different one? Trace Fridas is is going to be made into a film? Originally, that was the thought, but we have sort of evolved the the focus of the film. And I'm now making a film about artists with disabilities and celebrating our work, but also looking at some of the barriers that come along with being a person with a disability and an artist with a disability. And sometimes that comes with funding or, or accessibility to physical spaces or opportunities for education or mentorship. So really exploring those barriers and, and what would it take for, for those to be gone and for our work to be celebrated and, and, and out there in the world. Have these awards allowed you to do other projects that have sort of been sitting in the wings? I don't have a background in film. I just kind of like to pick things up and <laughs> learn them. So this program with Kartemkin and Hulu has been really great because I didn't have to go to school for a film. I sort of just learned it from professionals in the field. It has brought me to also learn about a group called Forward Doc, which is our documentary filmmakers with disabilities. And um, 
the founder of that group, one of the founders is Jim Lebrecht, who was a director of the film Crip Camp that recently came out on Netflix about Camp Jeanette and, and some disability activists and Judy Human. And so I've been able to be in touch with that group and work, and work with them. And that's been awesome to find a community of other filmmakers and learn from them too. Is there an artist, writer, or artist advocate that we may not be aware of that you think we should be? I just mentioned her, Judy Human. If, if people are not familiar with her, she just wrote a book and she was part of this film, Crip Camp. But her book is great. It's called Being Human. And she talks about her journey of like advocacy and, and making change and the sit-ins in San Francisco and working with other movements to make change. It was history that I didn't know, even though I've been disabled for over 25 years. And the disability movement, disability history is not in the books. It's not in history books, really. I, I laughed in the book. I cried in the book. I got angry in the book because I didn't know these things and I should, and more people should. If there's one action, I know there's probably many that we could undertake to move ourselves from an ally to an accomplice. What do you think it would be? One really good one is to not be afraid to, to speak up, to send that email, to make that post on social media, because oftentimes people will see things and then reach out to me and say, oh, I saw this and this, you should write a letter or you should write them an email or you should call them and tell them this. And my reaction to that is, no, you should. Mm. Like you saw that happen and you recognized that it wasn't right and you should take that action to, to do that because it, it's exhausting work to have to do it. And I think the more people that are more vocal, we have a larger group, there's power in numbers. Thank you, Rebecca, for your artistry, generosity, and authenticity. In the paper by Wendy Ng, Cyrus Marcus Ware, and Alyssa Greenberg titled Activating Diversity and Inclusion, they mention five guiding principles for good allyship, and one that Rebecca spoke of today is, allies listen intently with their full attention, withhold judgment, check and address their implicit biases, and respond thoughtfully. Active listening is a difficult but crucial skill that takes practice and training. I will put links to Rebecca's artistic work, her company Backbones, and the work by artists Rebecca mentioned here today in the podcast details for this episode. Thank you for joining me today. In the spirit of reconciliation, I acknowledge as a white settler with privilege that I live, work, and play on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Siksika, Kainai, Pekani, the Tsutina Nation, the Stony Nakoda, Bearspaw, Chiniki, Wesley Nations, the Métis Nation, Region 3, and all people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. Continue this important learning journey with me in future Ally to Accomplice podcasts.